0: Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, put on your cool blue filters and crank up the butt rock. This is Miami Vice. Well, Well, Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Miami Vice, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, how are you doing this weekend?
1: Well, you know, the weather has warmed up here. The hills are green. The flowers are blooming. And as much as I'm not really an outdoorsy person, I'm trying to get outside a little bit absorb a little bit of that spring sunshine in the hopes that Mother Nature will drag me along with the flowers into a season of rejuvenation and growth. Well, I hope so. It sounds lovely. Yeah, thanks.
0: We've had days get into the mid-70s, Ooh. but then the mornings are like, it was like 17 degrees the other morning, so we've got very unpredictable weather happening right now.
1: Yeah, that's still pretty cold.
0: But also, my allergies are all... Fucked, which is like I shouldn't be dealing with allergies when it's thirty-three degrees out in the middle of the day. It doesn't feel right.
1: Yeah, no, the little allergy gremlins are supposed to freeze up and die at that temperature, I thought.
0: But then the next day it's warm enough where they start oh, shaking off the come back to life. The dust. So little nasty buggers. Yeah. This is gonna be a weird summer considering how warm the winter was and then it got cold and snowy in March. <laughs> like
1: everything's out of whack.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Aside from that, everything's good on my neck of the woods. Glad to hear it. I understand you have a pretty cool movie that you brought to show and tell today. I'm excited to Talk about this one.
1: I have what I think is kind of a no-brainer. I went back and rewatched Edge of Tomorrow, which I I feel like nobody's sleeping on Edge of Tomorrow anymore, are they? This came out in 2014. At the time, it was it wasn't appreciated then, but now this is kind of one of the very best sci-fi movies of the last decade. It's just a really good original concept sci-fi. It's got this big sci-fi premise to it, and it's just executed really well. So it's a thrilling action movie, and it's a really mind-twisting sci-fi movie. I saw it back at the time when it first came to streaming. A bunch of years have gone by. I'm like, that's time to rewatch this thing. And this time around, what I found was really fun to discover or rediscover is like, you kind of remember the Tom Cruise character and he goes through this journey where first he's this obnoxious jerk, cowardly, very reluctant, and is beaten into submission by the premise of the movie and it ends up becoming this ultra competent and driven hero. And then he's kind of held up in comparison to the Emily Blunt character as like, she's the real hero. But what was really fun was there is this point in the middle of the movie where it dawns on you that like... Like, she's not any more of a natural hero than he was. She'd just been through all the same shit before he did. And right. it's kind of subtle. They don't hit you with that. But it was fun having that realization for myself as I rewatched it and reenjoyed all the action.
0: Yeah. It's a movie I saw in theaters, actually. One of the first movies I saw with my wife, actually, I think. Oh, neat. I really enjoyed it at the time. Most people now prefer the title Live, Die, Repeat, which was the working title. And I think the title of the manga that it's based on as well. Okay, But I really liked Doug Lyman as a director for a while there. like he, he had a bit of a hot streak. He did Swinger's Go, The Born Identity, back to back to back, uh, which are three very strong movies. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which your mileage may vary, uh, yeah. but it was successful by most metrics. And he did Jumper, okay, which I don't think I've ever seen actually. After Edge of Tomorrow, he made American Maid, which was the Tom Cruise playing Barry Seal, the pilot who flew Escobar's cocaine back and forth
1: okay. f- yes. from
0: Columbia to- Vaguely remember that. Was not a good movie. And then he made Chaos Walking, which was a complete turkey. It was was a movie that was filmed back in 2017 and released in 2021 Ooh. with Tom Holland, Daisy Ridley, Mads Mickelson, Damian Bashir, Cynthia Erivo. Like listen to that cast. Good cast. And $125 million budget, grossed $27 million. It seemed like that might've been the death knell for his career, but now he's making the Roadhouse remake, which is coming out relatively soon. I think it's already done filming. Okay. Is that with Gyllenhaal? Jake Gyllenhaal playing Dalton. Yeah. It's going straight to Amazon, I believe. Okay. Um. Yeah. His career has been very up and down, more down lately than up, but I have some hopes for the Roadhouse remake that it'll be a return to form for him. Yeah. Return to form for him is a hard uh, return to form for him.
1: We're wishing him all the form forms.
0: But I was going to bring a show this week. I have watched a lot of movies lately, but they're all movies that everyone's either seen or decided not to see. Am I going to break any new ground by telling people like Avatar, the way of water is a thrill ride for the whole family. (laughs) Everyone knows what the fuck Avatar is now. So I want to talk about a show that I just don't hear people talk about a lot. It's been on the air for a long time. Obviously has its fan base but it never gets brought up. You know, any of the TV related podcasts we listen to, they never talk about it, It never gets any award buzz or Mm. even nominations. It's on FX. So it's on a, it's on a prominent network, but it's the show Snowfall, okay? which is about to wrap up its sixth and final season. I watched the first three seasons as they aired and really enjoyed them. The season three finale of Snowfall was just like a really, really good episode of television. But then for some reason I was like, that was great. I'm never going to watch the show again. And I just (laughs) stopped watching it forever. Seasons four and five came and then when six was like halfway done, I was like, I should watch snowfall again. And I jumped back into it and I'm glad I did. It's kind of a retelling of the origins of crack cocaine in America. So it takes place largely in Los Angeles, your hometown.
1: Birthplace of crack.
0: But it also deals a little bit with, not a little bit, it's a prominent part of the storyline, but with the Iran Contra aspect of it, where the CIA is actually bringing the cocaine in and selling it, wholesaling it to drug dealers and using that money to fund wars to overthrow governments that they don't like. And it's mostly a fictionalized retelling of that. The characters aren't. Real people by and large, but they are right. based on real people and they're combinations of a few different people, things like that. But really well acted. It's like a bit of a soap opera. I wouldn't say it's going for gritty realism at all. Okay. It's it's a little heightened, but immensely entertaining, well acted, well written, directed. John Singleton created the show oh, okay. and directed a bunch of episodes early on, and it's been in capable hands since his untimely passing. But yeah, if anyone's looking for a crime drama that's pretty entertaining and a little pulpy at times, I would say you should check out Snowfall, especially now that it's about to wrap up. You've got a lot a backlog you can catch up on, but it doesn't feel like it overstayed its welcome. I think we were just talking about this off mic shows that overstay their welcome. Like I feel they were maybe treading water with season five a little bit, trying to kill some time, but it always felt like they were building towards something. And this feels like the natural conclusion of it. So I really like when a show is able to wrap up in that way.
1: That's a good recommendation. And it's also easier one to take when you know that a show is coming to an end. When someone recommends you a show that's seven seasons in and still going strong, you're like, I will never catch up to this thing. And this one, at least you know what you're getting into if you decide to dive in.
0: And Damson Idris, he's the lead of the show, and he's in Donald Glover's new show, Swarm, which I know you checked out. Yes, I did. He's very, very talented fucking another British guy doing an immaculate Los Angeles accent in snowfall. Oh,
1: I'm going to have to check it out.
0: But we're not here to talk about snowfall. We're here to talk about a place where the snow rarely falls, Miami, <laughs> and their vice division of the
1: Miami Dade PD. And studying about this, they were just the Dade County sheriffs in charge of Miami at the time the show started back in the 80s. And they renamed themselves later to be more Miami after the show, maybe. I don't know. I might have made that whole story up. Anyway,
0: But you were a fan of
1: the show, right? I was. I got to say this takes me back. And I'm not even going to be able to do justice to the phenomenon that was Miami Vice in my childhood, in my junior high years. Such a huge part of my childhood. I will admit to owning at least three linen blazers during this era. With the I, sleeves rolled up? I did roll up the sleeves occasionally. Man, it's embarrassing. No. If I didn't hang around with an accepting drama class crowd in junior high, I would have certainly been beaten to a pulp for dressing like this. <laughs> it's just,
0: It was just your, your generation's version of Genko jeans, which is what I wore when I was in okay. junior high. So yeah. we all have our skeletons in the closet. Ian. <laughs> Every generation has something.
1: Those were good times, but in reading about the show, like it was such a huge part of culture. Macy's had a... Miami Vice menswear section. Yeah. It was just everywhere. It was inescapable. And I was certainly wrapped up in it. Crockett and Tubbs were childhood heroes of mine. But this movie, by the time this came out, I was aware of it. I don't think I was a big Colin Farrell fan at the time. It took me until recently to warm up to him. And now I'm a big fan. But I think I kind of just dodged this movie because I was like, I'm not into it.
0: Colin Farrell was at an interesting point in his career when this movie came out. We'll talk about that a little more later. But I did not watch a minute of the Miami Vice TV show. Obviously, it was before my time, but it, it always seemed a little goofy to me, like the pastel colors and the kind of just that that network TV cop stuff like by the time I was old enough to get into TV we were already kind of getting the Sopranos and Oz and like these kind of cable shows that were a little grittier a little more realistic so I kind of avoided any basic cable procedurals like that but you recommended me read through the Wikipedia on the show and it was eye-opening just to see like how much of culture was influenced by Miami Vice and not just the ones that are most obvious obviously cars fashion decor what was the style of house that was so popular in Miami at the time
1: yeah is that Art Deco
0: Miami Vice was credited with helping retain a lot of that in Miami. Like people didn't want to tear down those Art Deco buildings and put up new stuff. They were like, "No, we got to maintain."
1: Yeah, they started restoring the Miami
0: vibe, that whole look. Firearms, like there were some guns used in Miami Vice that just looked really cool, and they became po- like those gun manufacturers became popular in America because of the show. Isn't that wild? Uh, watch brands were lobbying to be like the watch that Sonny wears. Oh, it was Rolex at first, and then another company offered more money for the exclusive rights to be Sonny Crockett's watch of choice. I was like, "What's the equivalent today?" I don't. Think there is one, right?
1: As people talk about, there was more of a monoculture back then. There were fewer options of things to get into. And so a big network TV show could take over the culture. And this one absolutely did. And the guns thing, I hadn't refreshed on that Wikipedia about the show until after watching the movie. But in the movie, there's a lot of guns in the movie. There's a bunch of scenes where they're loading guns, they're putting guns into trunks, they're taking them out, and they rarely fire them. There's a big firefight at the end. But other than that, they don't use most of the guns that they cock and load and show off and fetishize. And I'm like, why are they doing this. And then I read that. I'm like, oh, it's one of the core themes of the original show is just show off guns. And Aren't guns Michael, cool? <laughs> Michael Mann's like, I got to go back to what worked for us.
0: It was like that scene in Pineapple Express where Seth Rogen's like, if you don't know what to do, just film a bunch of people loading and like cocking guns. And, <laughs> and it goes on for like 45 seconds in the movie, Pineapple <laughs> Express, which is really funny. But when I was watching this, I was like, oh, like this is what they're parodying. yeah, and Because there's so many that. scenes where Colin Farrell is just like slamming a clip in and yeah. cocking it back. And like at one point it was veering up to the line of self-parody where they get, to the hotel room in Haiti and just unload a fucking arsenal in their house
1: what are you guys expecting (laughs) to happen right now how many of those you can't carry all of them yeah because they don't use them there's almost no gunshot until the very end of the movie which we'll get to which I kind of like as a choice the
0: threat of violence is always more satisfying I think for building tension than the reality of it and the gunshots that we do get in the early part of the film are fucking crazy yeah but let's talk about the making of the movie a little first then we'll start talking more specifically about the guns and whatnot
1: yeah why don't you tell us how this thing happened All
0: right. In 2006, Michael Mann was coming off his first certified hit in years with 2004's Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise frenemy thriller, Collateral. Before that, he had flopped with both the Insider and Ali, though they both got mostly positive reviews. Years earlier, during a party for Ali, Fox had planted the idea in Mann's head to reboot his old show, Miami Vice. Mann was intrigued and decided to run with it, but replaced the pastels and sunshine of the original show for a Miami that looks more like Seattle. Gray, cloudy, foggy for some reason? Ah, uh, Miami. Home of the famous trench coat bikini. Fox was likely angling for the role of Ricardo Tubbs for himself, but Will Smith, Samuel Jackson, and Denzel Washington were all considered before Fox was awarded the part. Mann asked the original Sonny Crockett, Don Johnson, who he'd like to hand the mantle off to, and Johnson suggested Colin Farrell. Mann was sold and went about casting Farrell. With his stars intact, he rounded out the cast with familiar faces like Dominic Lombardozzi, Naomi Harris, Kieran Hines, and Justin Thoreau. Chinese megastar Gong Li was cast as Isabella, a love interest for Crockett, and John Ortiz was cast as drug dealer Jose Yero. With a budget of over million secured, man got to shooting.
1: My man.
0: It did not go smoothly. Oh, man. Between signing the contract for Miami Vice and filming Beginning, Fox won his Oscar for Ray and was no longer happy with his salary and billing in the movie. Fox's salary was raised while Farrell's was cut. Fox also refused to fly commercially to the film's many locations, convincing Universal to charter a private jet for him.
1: This guy's crafty, like some kind of small forest predator.
0: He also didn't want to film scenes on boats or planes. Fox also objected to filming in many of the crime-ridden areas, Man chose for their authenticity, and left the Dominican Republic abruptly after shots were fired on set there. In addition to the DR, scenes were filmed in Haiti, Uruguay, Paraguay, and of course Miami. Unfortunately, filming was done during hurricane season in all of these hurricane-prone locations. Well, I sure hope that less than a week of delays were attributed to weather. Over a week of delays were attributed to weather. Dang it. Fox's refusal to travel for the film required Man to rethink his preferred ending, which was to be shot in Paraguay, and return to a previously abandoned ending, which takes place in Miami. All this and more caused the film's budget to balloon to a figure Universal reported as $135 million, but which several people who worked on the film have said was in excess of $150 million. But the movie was released, made a billion dollars, and everybody loved it. Just kidding. The movie was a flop, only earning $164 million, and was mostly disliked by critics who dismissed it as ponderous, incomprehensible, confusing, and boring. Like so many other bombs on this podcast, though, it has enjoyed a period of reevaluation recently and is now considered a cult classic.
1: You're describing Jamie Foxx. He's starting to sound like a diva there. He's starting to sound like he's getting too big for his britches. And then you're like, and there were gunshots on set, so he left. I'm like, you know what? I don't blame you.
0: That's not the most unreasonable thing to be upset about if you're an actor.
1: When the real bullets start flying, you
0: can excuse yourself. I mean, I just think I hear so many stories about what the Narcos Mexico team dealt with filming in Mexico for that show. They had Mm -hmm. a location scout get murdered. There was always threats of violence against them because a lot of the characters on the show are still alive and running drugs in Mexico. (laughs) Like, El Chapo was a big character on that show, but so was El Mayo, who was still at large and running the Sinaloa cartel. So it's walking up too close to like current events for some of their liking. Like, I don't think they had any trouble in Colombia because all that stuff is kind of ancient history. Okay.
1: And this, all the bad guys are pretty much made up in this one. And so these locations were just for atmosphere. Like Michael Mann wanted things to look authentically gritty and they do. And you go, okay, it worked. Was it worth it? Maybe not if you had this crazy ballooning budget that you had no hope of recouping.
0: Yeah, the movie looks exciting expensive, but it doesn't look $150 million expensive, which you posited that it was having some Lord of War budget troubles where they just were like, if the scene takes place in Greece, we'll fly to Greece. But they probably could have found some cheaper alternatives.
1: And like we talked about this off air, it's confusing all the places it goes. You don't even know where you are. So it's like who's the authenticity for if you're like, I don't know, we're in some place it's kind of maybe tropical. Maybe we're in the Caribbean. Maybe we're in South America. And it's kind of one's as good as the other. Now there's some beautiful shots for a handful full of like aerial shots because either flying cocaine from here to there. And there's some beautiful overhead shots. And you're like, oh, that was nice. But it's not the main point of the movie. It's not a movie about pilots. So there's definitely could have been some room to cut corners.
0: We travel by land, sea and air in this movie, actually. Yeah. Crockett and Tubbs. Not only do they have a Ferrari and a speedboat or I'm sorry, a go fast boat. They probably have a fucking private plane, too. Like how much do vice detectives in Miami make? Is it six million dollars?
1: This is a good question. I think people ask this a lot. Starting with the TV show. But then I picked up something in that Wikipedia article that said part of the inspiration for the TV show was the initiation of the new practice of asset forfeiture in which uh, law enforcement agencies could just take stuff from drug dealers. And you go, oh, it explains where the Ferraris came from and etc. I
0: feel like Crockett drives that home, though. Like, well, he just buy it at auction for $10,000.
1: It's deep cover, man. He's got to live that lifestyle as what's his Sonny Burnett. Is that his cover? Sonny name? Sonny Burnett. Yeah. yeah. He's got to be in character all the time. It's
0: It's confusing, man. But yeah, the locations, I think we said sometimes you do get a little scroll on the bottom of the screen that tells you like Havana, Cuba. They tend to only do it the first time you go a place, but then they jump around to so many locations and they don't do it in the subsequent visits
1: to those locations. Yeah.
0: Some of them kind of blend together and it's hard to get your sense of place. But also this movie doesn't give a shit if you understand what's going on.
1: No, it really doesn't.
0: This movie is not interested in spoon feeding the audience (laughs) into understanding the plot at all. And
1: those were the criticisms of the original TV show too. So again, man is being pretty true to his history. That was, a show that was supposed to be inspired by MTV music videos and it was more about the vibe and it was more about looking cool like kind of pare back the dialogue we'll pare back the story and just have guys stand around and look moody and this movie spends a lot of time standing around and looking cool.
0: Do you remember the show having such like a grim tone to it though because this movie has almost no levity in it at all. There's no jokes to be found. There's no tension deflating stuff in this movie. It's all
1: Yeah. There's a lot of what you might call angst or moodiness that's not even Explain. Right. It's just like you get from the beginning, you're like, Crockett and Tubbs are unhappy men. They are living difficult lives. And like every time they go for a drive, they got these thousand yard stares like, man, life is fucked up and we're driving to the next fucked up shit we got to deal with.
0: I think, yeah. I think Tubbs might smile in one scene with Trudy. I don't think Crockett ever smiles.
1: <laughs> I don't yeah. think anyone smiles in this movie. I had to refresh myself a little bit on the show. I watched part of one episode and I mentioned to you uh, as a side note, like I watched the show as a kid and who knows, even if I was paying attention, I tried to go back to it like 10 years ago or something I found an episode on YouTube I had remembered the show as like this moody dark gritty serious thing because a lot of it was you know it was these long colorful Michael Mann shots with lights glowing and a lot of drug violence and all this stuff and I watched this one episode and it was absolute cornball 80s cop show almost like a parody of itself and I was like holy shit was that what this show was like or did it jump the shark at some point which I think it may have but I think even when the show was known as a dark and gritty and serious show it had levity like you are saying The standard for grittiness has come a long way since the 80s. So like, yeah, it was still an 80s cop show. There was always going to be the junior detective on the team and there's going to be some B story where something goofy happens to him or there's going to be a goofy informant who's like comic relief.
0: There is one of those kind of in this movie. They try, but they
1: fail. almost. But it's also that scene. Well, I'm going to call out because I thought it was way too self-serious and cheesy and not in the funny, charming way.
0: I don't know. You want to start walking through the plot so we
1: can get to some of these more specific nitpicks we have? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Here we go. Miami-Dade Vice Detective Sonny Crockett, played by Colin Farrell, and Rico Tubbs, played by Jamie Foxx, are busy working a prostitution sting when they get a frantic call from an old informant named Alonzo Stevens, played by John Hawks. An Aryan Brotherhood drug deal that Alonzo's been helping the FBI set up has been compromised. It ends with Alonzo, his wife, and three FBI agents dead. So Crockett and Tubbs and their boss, Lieutenant Castillo, played by Barry Shabaka-Henley, meet with FBI agent in charge, John Fujima, played by Kieran Hines, to figure out what the fuck happened. There's a mole somewhere in the intelligence chain, so the guys come up with a plan for an undercover operation to find the leak. The plan is for the Miami Vice team to become the new transportation for Jose Yero, the Colombian supplier in The Deal Gone Bad. So the boys blow up Yero's current transpo team, steal a load of his drugs, and arrange to take over. In their new undercover roles, Sonny and Rico meet with Yero, played by John Ortiz, who's suspicious of them. Then after they meet with Yero's big boss, Arc Angel de Jesus Montoya, played by Luis Tosar, and his right hand woman, Isabella, played by Gong Lee, our heroes are given the chance to prove themselves by flying a load of cocaine in from Colombia.
0: Man, John Ortiz is so good, but that guy plays a fucking drug dealer like a lot.
1: Does he? I like his face is familiar.
0: Yeah, even when he played a cop in American Gangster, he was also a drug dealer, like he was a dirty cop selling drugs on the oh, side. yeah so we can't, can't get away with it. Yeah, but but really good cast in this movie. We get some John Hawks right off the bat, which, you know, I'm a fan of. Love, love, yes. love John Hawks. And he's great in this kind of small role he has. He's He plays panicked impotence so well.
1: Yes. Perfect casting. And this is some of the first real drama. So we first we meet Crockett and Tubbs in this really stock, kind of almost goofy setup scene. It's just, OK, meet the cops. They're on the job. They're doing some other sting that has nothing to do with any of the plot of the rest of the movie. They're just chasing this.
0: Actually, we meet them in a, in speedboats, right? Did we watch two, ver- two different versions? There are two <laughs> no, versions our- of this movie floating around did you watch it on the
1: Plex? No. Oh. oh, tell me, what did I miss? Or maybe I just forgot there was another scene that I just wrote off because it was. No, it's
0: pretty long. It's like a five minute scene of them just racing a speedboat and then they park. And that's when Dominic Lombardozzi's character meets the pimp is on like the pier right oh. by where they park the boats.
1: Not in my version. I did not see that version of the movie.
0: Shit. Wow. We watched two different versions of the movie. The one I watched <laughs> was like two hours and 20 minutes. I think the one you watched is like two hours and three. Okay. Yeah. If I watched the director's cut and you didn't. So you got more setup. Yeah. There, there might be some moments where we have a little bit of a disparity, but we'll work through that. No big deal yeah
1: can't be a big deal it can't mean that much because this is not a lot of content in this movie there's not a lot of plot
0: yeah like yeah again they race raced speed boats for five minutes nothing happens we don't even know if they win oh actually there is a throwaway line about oh you guys almost won oh. and it's unclear if they're undercover at the time because like they also have that boat all the time right is that just their boat i don't know i like nothing makes sense
1: oh man <laughs> yeah that sounds like that scene made the movie worse i'm glad i didn't have it in my version
0: i was pretty bummed about it i was like okay and
1: you point out later how uncomfortable those boats look to actually ride it. they're not not fun boats they're like literally race car boats they're not for having a good time pleasure cruising
0: nobody drives like a formula one car down the street that was awesome like you wouldn't even know what the fuck to press and they're completely different (laughs) no tread on the tires but yeah i'm getting away from myself here
1: yeah so we met crockett and Tubbs now i guess in two scenes if you watch the longer cut And they're just kind of posing around. And then life intervenes or trouble intervenes in the form of our boy, John Hawks, who's in trouble. And then there's a lot of posing. They're on a rooftop and they're each making cell phone calls and looking tough and talking tough to the FBI. Hey, your operation's going bad. Our informant just called us and he thinks he's not going to live very long. And he doesn't live very long because the Sarian Brotherhood has got his wife. Okay, so wait, the whole thing with the pimp, you got that scene, right? Yes. In the club? I just kind of glossed glossed over it because it's (laughs) them staring at a pimp and kind of mean mugging it from across a club and eventually losing him as he goes into an elevator.
0: I just wanted to say about that scene, my only thing about that scene is that no two people have ever looked more like undercover cops than Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx in this nightclub do. It's almost like they're trying. Like they should have just worn their badges <laughs> on necklaces outside their jackets because it's absurd.
1: They're staring so hard. Don't you learn how to be inconspicuous when you're surveilling somebody as an undercover cop?
0: Like they're talking into their wrist. They're like, you don't even have a thing there. You're not wired. Why are you doing that? That's a Rolex. There's no, uh... There's no micro. Microphone in there, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Alonzo, the call—it's some good tension there on the rooftop. But like, also, we don't know and/or care who Alonzo is.
1: No, it's asking us to pick up a lot in a short time.
0: They worked with him. They're no longer working with him now. He's working with the FBI, and he has sold out the FBI.
1: It's interspersed with them pulling him over and trying to talk him down and figure out what what went on. Meanwhile, the FBI guys are getting shot to shit in their meetup with the Aryan Brotherhood because Aryan Brotherhood knows that they're not real drug dealers.
0: They get shot with like fucking. Ground to air missiles. These bullets are massive.
1: (laughs) The movie loves its guns. And yeah, there's two snipers plus some bodyguards on the ground. And one of the snipers has one of those big 50 cal things that just explodes a person. Like an elephant gun. (laughs) And it's so... Let's talk about the look of the film because part of the look is Michael Mann's thing, which we saw in Collateral. And as soon as this movie came on, I'm like, oh, he's doing the Collateral thing. He's got that handheld DV cam. And don't tell Michael Mann, but it was too soon to use this kind of DV cam for night shots in theatrical movies. The grain is is so intense and I know he likes it he thinks it's a cool effect but it gives this kind of almost home video look if you ever shot home video on an old camera at night the images kind of burn in and linger and so like part of this drug deal looks like you're watching somebody's home video and then it switches to normal cameras for other points which is a little jarring and one of the other points with a normal camera is the slow-mo of the FBI agents getting shot inside their car and a bullet comes through and that guy's arm flies off and then another one comes through his chest and just the whole like back of the car seat explodes it's really intense. And it's also almost humorously jarring to me how the various looks clash together.
0: Filming action and violence is kind of a big man thing. Yes. Both a big Michael man thing and a big masculine thing. But I meant Michael man. He definitely knows how to film gunshots and gunfights. Even though, yeah. like you mentioned, there's not a ton of gunfire in this movie outside of the very
1: beginning and the very end. He's into it. And yeah, I'm never knocking him for his gunplay in this movie. It's all top notch.
0: You know, Doug Lyman, the guy we were talking about early on because he directed Edge of Tomorrow, he was a big early adopter of that kind of handheld shaky camp. thing. Thing, but I don't think he was most of the born identity takes place in the daytime and it's pretty much handheld the entire way. So like you settle into it, your eyes get used to it. Your whole
1: yeah it doesn't throw
0: you off. It doesn't switch back and forth. The switching back and forth is the problem I have with it. I didn't really mind the grain so much just because I love collateral and that movie takes place entirely at night. Yes. And I've watched it so many times that like, that's just what Michael Mann movies look like in my head now.
1: Yeah. It's just a look. I get it. And it works. He made it work for him for sure.
0: I think that's my favorite Michael Mann movie. Michael Mann movie, Michael Mann movie, Michael Mann movie, Michael Mann. More movie.
1: so than heat. Because Heat's got to be right up there, right?
0: Heat's up there for sure, but I think
1: I prefer collateral. Oh, interesting. And Manhunters. Oh, man.
0: He's got a lot of good movies, man.
1: Yeah. He's
0: so good. The Keep is underrated, too. But let's talk about this rooftop meeting with the FBI after Alonzo gets smushed by a truck, which, by the way, the movie doesn't show you like his body under the truck, but it just shows you a little smear of blood under the truck as it drives off. And that's so much more effective. It's so grisly. Like, yeah. Yeah. That was the second
1: scene in a row after we saw the FBI getting gunned down. Then, Alonso gets smushed, in and again, like really well done. I mean, if, if you're a connoisseur of bloody violence, this was excellent.
0: He's standing on a bridge with a very low barrier, so I'm like, oh, he's going to jump off the bridge, and
1: then he goes the other way and runs into traffic. You know, fucking tractor
0: trailer just knocks him out. I was like, oh yeah. shit, it took me by surprise because yeah. jumping yeah. off the bridge yeah. is like the less violent option. You'd expect a lot of directors to go that route,
1: and it's kind of like cinematic. You can do the slow mo right. shot from a distance, but yeah, no. Quintub's
0: reaching for him and trying, right? Him, like,
1: no, he just gets pancaked by dump truck. truck Driver.
0: And it's not in slow-mo, like it happens very quickly. Yeah. It's, a, it's really well done, really effective. Not a fun scene, but a no. well-done scene.
1: But yeah, good to set the jarring mood that our heroes are in when they go and meet with Agent Fujima on a rooftop. And you know that cops love to be pissed off and argue with each other, so that this gives them plenty of ammunition to go to this meeting with. I
0: argue about jurisdiction. That's one of my... I always love that scene in movies where everyone argues about the jurisdiction. <laughs> but yeah, we get Kieran Hines playing Agent Fujima. Interesting name for a Kieran Hines character. Yeah. I don't mind it. We know him from... He was... He was step- Steppenwolf, right? In Justice League. Wasn't that him? Yeah, it was. He was Steppenwolf. Oh, yeah. Um, very good. Good call. I think a lot, a lot of people know him from Game of Thrones. He had a big role on that for a couple of years. years. Okay. Mance Raider. His character always looks like a deer in the headlights, though. Like he's got these really big eyes and they're always like wide open in his <laughs> scenes. Like he always looks a little afraid.
1: Yeah. It's funny because you go into this thinking it's going to be one of those jurisdiction fights. And actually, he kind of concedes them everything they want. They go, you got to let us do this operation because everybody on your end is compromised and we don't know who the mole is. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Let's do it. <laughs> so, oh, okay. I thought we were going to have a fight there, but no, they're all on board.
0: Like they approach it with the energy, like they're arguing, but everyone's <laughs> kind of agreeing.
1: It's, it's staged for drama because they're on the roof of a parking garage. And so it's got some of that dreamy Miami lights in the background kind of vibe. And then also it's kind of just a big exposition dump. But I was like, well, I could use an exposition dump in this movie because it's already kind of confusing. As we said, they like to go short on information and long on mood. And here at least I'm like, okay, they explained it all in words I can understand. I know exactly what the plan is for this undercover operation.
0: Yeah, we could have used a couple more exposition dumps later in the movie because once all the pieces start piling up on each other, it can be hard to make sense of what's what. Yeah, But yeah, at this point, I was pretty clear on what was going on and I was appreciative of that because of everything I'd heard about this movie is that it's impossible to follow and you'll be confused and lost. But I didn't have that feeling yet. Yes. <laughs> but then they go embrace this CI they have, Nicholas, played by Eddie Marson. And that's a scene that I know we both had problems with for different reasons. So why don't you go over your gripes with this scene here?
1: So my gripe, is here's a movie we're just saying it's not big on dialogue. They kind of want to keep everybody terse and not say a lot. And then some reason Michael Mann just wrote the shit out of the scene and it's the stuff that like you like to quote Harrison Ford saying you can write this shit but you can't say it. Like this, this scene is full of that shit. It's six different detectives. They're arranged around this apartment in a tableau. They're all leaning against a different wall or table or behind a bar and they are finishing each other's sentences. Like it's this grilling of this informant trying to badger him into helping them out. And it's just, it's entirely too snappy dialogue. Like it's too clever, not by half, but by one and a half.
0: By 150%. (laughs) And that comes around to my other problem with the scene, which is that Naomi Harris, an actress I I rather enjoy. We both just watched Skyfall like last week for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, randomly. Without discussing it, we just both sat down and watched Skyfall like almost on the same day. And I was like, oh, Naomi Harris, she's great. And then I'm watching Miami Vice. I'm like, Naomi Harris, even better. She's fucking bad in this movie, man. She has this way overdone Bronx accent they explain in a throwaway line why she talk like that. But every other performance in this movie is pretty understated and kind of somber and quiet. And she's just fucking keyed up to a degree that feels so out of place.
1: She's brassy and loud and in people's face. And I don't know, maybe Crockett and Tubbs are doing a version of that, but their version of getting in people's faces is it's cool guy version. And she is, she's not a cool guy, which I guess is in one way, it's a good thing to have some variety on your team. So they're not all versions of the same personality, but it does, it feels weird. It feels a lot of place. I'm with, you on that.
0: At least she has like a defining characteristic. I could not tell you what Justin Thoreau's character is thinking at any given moment. Oh,
1: what's he going to do? What's that guy's deal? He's almost the gadget guy, but not quite. But like he ends up working the radio or the telescope or whatever. The telescope. (laughs) telescope. Doesn't he look through some kind of periscope at some point? I don't know. Probably.
0: I'm just like, he's stargazing. Everyone else is
1: Guys, check this out. A comet.
0: It's only coming around in another seven years before we see it again. (laughs) Shut the fuck up, Justin Thoreau. I don't know. But this was like also, it was kind of jarring. To see Justin throw in this? Because I was like, oh, he was like, he was doing stuff back then? I thought he was still writing Zoolander and shit, you know? Yeah. He was like, a, he was, he like wrote comedy movies for years. And then all of a sudden he just starts popping up in Michael Mann movies as like undercover cop.
1: Yeah. Maybe this is how he broke in as an actor. I don't really know his story. I remember that he had a lot of success as a writer. And then you turned me on to him in The Leftovers, where he's a leading man.
0: Incredible and, uh, performance in them. And just, yeah, just, just a great. Way too jacked. No upstate New York <laughs> cop needs to be that muscular. I'm sorry. Or is that muscular? It just doesn't exist. No,
1: no but he's, he's a compelling lead- Man hero, and in this he's like a funny third tier sidekick on the detective team that you barely get to see.
0: I'm looking through his IMDB right now. Like he he had some roles and stuff. Like he worked at Patrick Bateman's firm in American Psycho, because he looks like that guy. Uh, He was in Maholland Drive. He was he had a very small role in Zoolander. I guess his first big role though was he was on a show called The District. Oh, it was a Craig T. Nelson show, but he was on twenty seven episodes out of eighty-nine, so he was like a recurring role. Okay. But yeah, this feels like when he was starting to get into prestige stuff.
1: It's a cool credit, no matter what else we think of this movie. It's still Michael Mann's Miami Vice movie. Pretty cool to get to be in it.
0: Up front, I'll just say, I wouldn't say I like this movie, but it's not like poorly made. You can never accuse Michael Mann of fucking up a movie. It's just not my vibe. Yeah. All right. You ready to walk through the middle of the movie?
1: Yeah. Why don't you tell us what happened next?
0: Rico and Sonny successfully fly the load of cocaine from South America, but They make up a story that they had to fight off some rival drug runners, and in doing so, they located the drugs that had been stolen previously, because that's not confusing. They offer to return the recovered drugs to Montoya's cartel at no charge as a token of respect. Isabella is impressed and says they can have a second job, but Sonny has been noticing her looking at him, so he shoots his shot and asks her out for a drink. She says yes, so the two of them take his speedboat, I'm sorry, go fast boat, to Havana, where Isabella grew up. They drink mojitos and dance and have sex. In the morning, Sonny pitches her on expanding their deal, making him and Rico proud profit sharing partners with Montoya. Isabella takes the proposal back to Montoya and she's up front with him about sleeping with Sonny, but he's cool with it. It's all part of doing business. Montoya knows that Euro still distrusts the new guys, but he agrees to the deal. So Crockett and Tubbs meet with Euro and work out the plan for bringing the drugs by speedboat from Haiti to Miami and delivering it to the Aryan Brotherhood. But as they cruise towards Miami, there's a nasty twist. At Euro's direction, the Aryans have kidnapped Trudy, which is Naomi Harris's character, who is one of the undercover detectives and importantly is also Rico's girlfriend.
1: Yeah. Did we mention that in the first part?
0: Oh, that they're an item. I and they so. like
1: live together, right? There's a scene that sort of is. St- it seems
0: like they live together,
1: yeah. It's like a shower scene, but you think it's going to be a shower sex scene, but it's like just no. They're just handing off the shower from one to the other so they can get ready in the morning. If it
0: takes a while for your water to heat up, I mean, that's one way to do it. You just tap <laughs> yeah. the other person on the shoulder. You're like, hey, my turn. Tap them out. They seem to have a nice relationship.
1: The relationships are minimal. Actually, the movie spends the most time on this new relationship of Sonny and Isabella, and the other ones are kind of just taken for granted, including the relationship between Sonny and Rico, who are supposed to be the tightest of buds and are like this incredibly capable dynamic duo of cops and yet they kind of hardly relate to each other or interact all that much
0: yeah they try to give us like shorthand hints to let us know how close they are but there's really nothing in the script that harkens to their bond you always hear crockett and Tubbs, even if you don't know where they're from you're like oh those are two like best friends because that's just the way it's used yeah it was, like- even like, it was even a joke on the office when like michael finds a new best friend he calls him crockett okay and calls himself Tubbs. like everyone knows that it's kind of transcended people who watched Miami Vice or even know what it is. Yeah.
1: So like you come into the movie expecting maybe a little more between them and you do have to wonder based on hearing the gossip about this movie, how Farrell and Fox maybe didn't get along that
0: well. There wasn't much indication that they had problems with each other personally, okay. but like it, it sounds like everybody had a problem with Fox, but not Feral specifically. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay.
0: So I don't know how much acrimony there was between them. And they, they did work together again on Horrible Bosses, but I can't remember if they share any scenes.
1: Yeah, I can't either. But so I wrote down one one example of the two of them testing their relationship in the middle of it after Rico realizes there's something serious going on between him and Isabella. And for a second, Rico goes, hey, Sonny, are you sure you know which way is up? And Sonny snaps back with, yeah, of course I do. There's no other dog. There's a one line, you're in too deep. You don't know which way is up. And then he's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, I will never doubt you. Like, almost, <laughs> it's almost like a parody. He absolutely changed his tune and doesn't even say, okay, bro, I love you or whatever. He just right. goes, I will never doubt you.
0: Yeah, like a fucking text-to-voice robot just <laughs> (laughs) repeating these words with no emotion.
1: Yeah, it was Uh, weird. If that was supposed to help cement the deep understanding between the two, it it didn't really work for that.
0: I noticed that as well. It's a very, very jarring line of dialogue and it comes
1: out of nowhere. He didn't convince him. He didn't draw on something like, hey, remember, this is who I am. It was just like, no, I'm fine. Okay, I will never doubt you.
0: Should we talk about Havana
1: a little bit? Yes. Or Uruguay as it was? Oh, okay. That's right. They used some resort as a stand-in because this wasn't the right time to be actually dipping down to Havana.
0: I think we're allowed to film there now. Like American productions can film there. Okay. I think you can go to you can go to Cuba now if you have a reason.
1: At this time, it was like a real thing that they had to illicitly sneak in because her cousin was the harbor master. And this is really the big to me. This is what the movie is all about. This whole sequence, which is interesting, it's a whole romantic sequence of him coming on to her. It starts pretty funny because he's like, "Hey, you want to go out for a drink maybe?" And she's like, "What do you like to drink?" And suddenly he goes, "I'm a fiend for mojitos." Uh, <laughs> I was like, "Jesus Christ!" In, even in 2006, wasn't that already like a ridiculous, hilarious thing for someone to say?
0: The That was always a ridiculous thing for someone (laughs) to say. I'm a fiend for mojitos. Gee, it's such like a trashy line. I could see Don Johnson saying it, but I can't, like, it doesn't work for Colin Farrell.
1: Because it should be, maybe he should know that he's sounding like an absolute dork for saying that, but it doesn't seem like he does. Kind of said earnestly, and she's excited because she's like, oh, that's cool because I'm from Havana. Let me take you to a cool bar where they make a good mojito. And the bar happens to be in Havana, and it looks like a great mojito. I would enjoy one. Nice bar, good music, really good Cuban band. And then the music takes a turn. We should talk about the music in this movie because I'm like, I'm digging this. It's the Cuban scene. This is a real romance. Developing, it seems like they're maybe they're gonna go back to her place and have sex, and they do. And brr, the Cuban music turns off, and what comes on? Audio slave.
0: Michael Mann's favorite band. If you guys remember in collateral, there's oh. a pretty jarring audio slave needle drop at one point okay. too. Audio slave perplexes me as a band because I love Rage Against the Machine. I love uh-huh. Soundgarden. Okay. You take arguably the best parts from both sure. and mash them together, and you get just four out of ten dog shit butt rock. I don't know. I don't <laughs> like I don't like Audio Slave. I think they suck.
1: I love the sound of Cornell's voice. He was amazing. But I would point out if you're watching this movie with subtitles on and you have to read the Audio Slave lyrics while the sex scene is happening in front of you, it does not help. It does not make it better. <laughs> it
0: takes you out of the moment a little
1: bit. <laughs> it does. You kind of want to pretend that the Audio Slave is not there. And then what was hilarious to me is like they sleep together, they do this negotiating in the morning, and then there's like another sex scene shortly after. Is oh, it she her goes with back. her
0: husband? Yeah. With she Montoya. goes back
1: to her guy Montoya, and then they start to make out. That's when you realize that, okay, they, there wasn't just a business relationship. There's this sort of dual shit going on with her and Montoya. But then that scene segues immediately into her back to Havana to have more sex with Sonny. And a fucking other Audio Slave song comes on. Kong Lee signed up for this movie, big Chinese star. Is like, I'm going to get to do a big Hollywood picture. And they made her have sex twice to Audio Slave.
0: It's actually her character just carries around an iPod with only Audio Slave on it for any sexy time. So that's actually diegetic music uh, because it's her character playing these songs, not. <laughs> yeah the they, soundtrack.
1: They don't show her turning around to the nightstand and pressing play.
0: The soundtrack to this movie is weird. There's Enrique Iglesias on it, but also two Mogwai songs. Okay. Indire. <laughs> it's a very eclectic mix. And then we get one of my favorite butt rock bands, Nonpoint. Well, oh. I guess they're more like new metal than butt rock, I would say, because they're more like a rap rock band.
1: Okay. I don't even my, know the name. That's a deep cut for me.
0: I guess their biggest song would be like a bullet with a name on it was kind of their hit, but. Okay.
1: I wonder if I'd recognize it.
0: Probably not. If you were not like into the new metal scene at the time. Time it wasn't like a mainstream hit. They're kind of like POD, if you remember those guys, get a similar okay. vibe. But my fun non-point story, if you want a little tidbit. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my friend Craig went to the Starland Ballroom in beautiful Sayreville, New Jersey right. to see the band Seven Dust. Okay. And Nonpoint was the opener for Seven Dust, but before Nonpoint was Broken Social Scene. Okay. Great band. If you're not familiar with them, check them out. The opener for Broken Social Scene. So I'm talking like there's probably 30 people in this place. This is the fourth least. opener. Yeah. Like the yeah. lights are still on. The sun hasn't gone down yet. <laughs> is a band called Wicked Wisdom. Do you know who the lead singer of Wicked Wisdom is?
1: I have no idea.
0: Jay Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh. Me and my friend Craig are just standing in what I guess would be the pit, but everyone else is at the bar or like just sitting down somewhere. Like we're the only people like stand, like we're just talking to each other while this band <laughs> plays. And all of a sudden I feel a drumstick hit me in the chest and I look up and I guess their drummer was trying to be cool and woo, like to close their set, throws a drumstick oh, into the crowd. Okay. But the crowd was just me and Craig. <laughs> and so I just picked it up and I like took it home. But And also like when I looked up, Jada Pinkett Smith was just like staring me down because <laughs> I guess we were being rude. We weren't listening to No talking
1: to during my show. No. Man, they were not great. That's funny. I vaguely had remembered that she was in a band. Now that you said that, but like I could have never guessed. They're the like name. a metal
0: band. They're not fucking around. They're like okay. a, a metal band. She's not like a bad singer. I just okay it wasn't my it wasn't for me. But yeah, that was my. That non point was the second open. Like the what would you even call that? Is it the second opener or the third? Yeah, because they were the band that went on right before Seven Dust, so they okay. were advertised. There were a handful of people there to see Nonpoint. They weren't like just support act. They weren't the headliner, but they were a feature. They were a name at the time, not quite Seven Dust level, but they were
1: up there. But they got onto the this- Soundtrack doing in the air tonight. <laughs> I guess that's that'll get you on. They needed somebody to reprise. That's probably the most famous song associated with Miami Vice. Although there's a there's a bunch associated with that series. When you go back and look at it, yeah. they were making a concerted effort to get all kinds of music acts. And basically, this was first generation MTV music, so it was really eclectic back then. You had your Phil Collins, and you had a lot of ex Eagles band members. There was a lot of Glenn Frey on that Miami Vice soundtrack. This probably a Don Henley. Yeah, that.
0: I guess I guess you belong to the. City was written for the show, okay. Which I had I mean, no idea.
1: I think Smuggler's Blues was part of it too. I don't know if he wrote that for it.
0: Smuggler's Blues was the other song that is called out okay. by him in the Wikipedia, but I don't know if that was written for the show or just used. Certainly a good fit. Actually, in the air tonight featured heavily in the pretty dramatic moment in Snowfall recently, which I thought oh. was probably an homage. It takes place kind of in the same time period and deals with drug use uh, and such. Yeah,
1: there you go. It still has power. That's an all time song. Can't deny it. <laughs> Although you kind of see the gorilla now when you hear the drum fill.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Actually, our, one of our Twitter friends, Ralph Edward, he's not like active anymore, but he did. He was playing the song and then he like he had these really loud stairs, I guess, in his like apartment building and he ran down them in that cadence and it sounded oh, just wow. like the drums. It was really funny, but I think his account's <laughs> gone, so I don't know if I could find it. That's too bad. All right, so what else? We keep getting off topic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh. This movie evokes a lot of memories between the music and my all TV shows. A lot to talk about outside of the actual plot.
0: Let's see. We got to talk about their method for a- flushing out the rat. In the FBI that the subplot that is then abandoned immediately yeah. <laughs> because it's kind of a cool idea. I wouldn't quite call it a trope yet, but like you give separate groups of people different information and then kind of see what comes back to you yes. to see who's telling your secrets. So they tell every agency that this thing is going to happen on a certain day and it comes back that the FBI in D.C. is the leak. They're working with the uh, the cartel somehow.
1: And that solves nothing, even right. though we thought that was going to be the big thing. The whole reason Miami Vice got called into this was that everybody else who was on that task force was suspect. So the only thing they could do was deputize the local cops. And then by the time we find out that information, it's like, okay, so what? And there's never like an FBI guy who gets marched out or there's never really consequence to it. Did you detect any sort of wrap up of that story?
0: No, there is no closure on that aspect of the movie at all, as far as I could tell. It's weird. I don't get it. We didn't even know what day the thing was actually going to happen. So like none of this means anything to us.
1: Everything gets real fuzzy with the plot particulars of how things work out. And you'll see as we try to describe what happened. It doesn't really matter to know. All that matters is what we include you in there at the end of act two is they're going to deliver the drugs and there's a change and the change is bad because Trudy is tied up in a trailer. So like, okay, that's what we're focusing on now. And thankfully that's all we need to care about.
0: I wonder how much of that narrative confusion has to do with the switching around the ending at the last minute.
1: Yeah. That's an intriguing part of the story of this movie is like, what was the other ending? Was there something else where the rat got skewered in the end? Maybe.
0: Hard to say. As far as I know,
1: there's no details about what it was supposed to be out and about. Out.
0: All right. Anything else from this section we need to go over?
1: No. Why don't we try to bring it home? Let's do it. Here we go. Rather than deliver the boatloads of drugs to the Aryan Brotherhood under duress, Crockett and Tubbs hastily locate the trailer park where Trudy is being held hostage. They go in and kill the Aryans and stage a dramatic rescue, but just when they think it's over, Yero detonates a bomb remotely which puts Trudy in the hospital with critical injuries. In the aftermath, the guys call up Yero. They agree to meet and exchange the drugs for cash, but they insist on him coming in person, so Yarrow shows up. But with Isabella as his hostage, having convinced Montoya to cut her loose because she's in love with Sonny and she's no longer loyal. The drug deal then turns into an enormous firefight, but the good guys prevail. Rico kills Yarrow. Sonny rescues Isabella. But now that Sonny's cover is blown, he knows his relationship with Isabella can't go on. So with great sadness, he takes her back to Havana, where she can be safe from the law and from the cartel. And as Sonny says goodbye to his girlfriend, Rico sits anxiously with his in a Miami hospital. When finally, there's a ray of hope as Trudy awakens from her coma. So there's really not much plot
0: to go over in this section. It's just rescue Trudy, have a firefight. But the rescue scene in the trailer is pretty good, right? Like We we both enjoyed this sequence. It's when the movie really ramps up the violence again after it starts pretty bloody and then it gets pretty quiet and contemplative for an hour and a half and then it just kicks it back up now.
1: The trailer, it's kind of silly, just like how skilled the whole Miami Vice team goes into action and they're rolling under the trailer and punching through with, is that where I got that periscope idea? Does someone look through the black floor at the bottom of the trailer to spy what's going on inside? Maybe. Something's going on like that, but they're all lined up around it. And because it's Rico's girlfriend that's caught inside, he's the lead on this thing. And we get to see Jamie Foxx as Rico Tubbs kicking a bunch of ass. He beats down a little kid who tries to attack him. Then a big man comes and he stabs the guy like five times in one second. And it's it's some good action.
0: Yeah, well choreographed fight scene. Much better than the fight scene in the club earlier, which was Mm -hmm. painfully slow fight choreography. Yeah. But here it's like brutal, bones breaking, shots being fired, people bleeding out. Yeah. And
1: it's good stuff. I think the movie could have used a little more of that. Yeah. This is the cop action that you probably expect like to happen. When you but it's
0: also not, movies. it's not true to the series, right? Like the series wasn't violent to that degree.
1: I think it was known for being more violent than other cop shows or like showing more. Like in the episode I checked in on, which was called out in the Wikipedia, like this is a standout episode. It has a big machine gun shootout with drug dealers on a floating dock. And the ending isn't brutal violence, but it's a gruesome discovery. So it has a sort of grim aspects to it. I'm happy to get them all on the Plex if you want to revisit the series, by the way. I think actually they're all on Tubi or something. Like, They're out there for free. But yeah, I laughed at one point. This is the serious part, right? They almost rescue Trudy, but Yarrow gets his last minute revenge, sends her to the hospital. She's in surgery. The doctors and nurses come out of this room, start taking their masks off. And they're like, how is she? And he's like, I don't know. She's got a collapsed lung and a ruptured spleen. And I was like, dude, what were you doing in there? Shouldn't you have been inflating her lung and sewing up her spleen? Should be past (laughs) tense. She had a collapsed lung. (laughs) (laughs) This doctor literally tells him like, I don't know. This lady looks fucked up. You should call a doctor. It's my day off.
0: No, and that's pretty much the end of the movie there's a big shootout at the end, which almost felt a little anticlimactic considering how much better the trailer scene was. And they're kind of right back to back.
1: This is all out. They spent a lot of money on guns and ammo for the scene. And like we said, man is good at this stuff. It is a lot of chaotic firing, but you actually see the police side using some tactics, firing, maneuvering. So you understand why they're getting the better of the bad guys. I'm like, okay, I can get with a gunfight scene. That's not just random. And the good guys won because their bullets are luckier. Like they actually outfought the bad guys guys. And I appreciated that.
0: I wish it took place during the day, though, is my only nitpick. It can be hard to follow. Like these nighttime shootouts, I just kind of, my brain turns off. You it's. Know? I
1: know what you mean. It's easy to turn it's out. It's hard to follow. Yeah.
0: It was during the daytime. I would have been really into it. That's what I love so much about the heat shootout, which is so famous. Yes. It's in broad daylight in a busy downtown LA street.
1: Yeah. I mean, I kept coming back to that. You can see a lot of parallels stylistically and content wise. And when you hold anything in this movie up to heat, it just wilts. It's like, I mean, not to accidentally introduce a metaphor there, but... Uh, <laughs> Solid. He didn't mean that. Like, literally, <laughs> like, the relationships, the action, everything is just on this other level in heat that you're like, oh, d- he didn't get there with this one, unfortunately.
0: It's not a total failure, but it's, yeah, it's not heat. No. I, gu- I guess that w- that's a good way to summarize my feelings on this movie. It's not a turkey. It's no. well made. Like, nobody should be embarrassed by this movie. It's just, it's like listening to a song you really like, but at half speed. I hear everything there that, like, would be really cool, but it's just not quite all the way there yet.
1: The movie doesn't quite get there. And then it stops to have the characters stand there and stare into space, which is like what it substitutes for real meaning most of the time, which is not bad because, you know, Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx, they are charismatic actors. And so it's not bad to see them just kind of looking off into the distance. But when you think about the personal dilemmas of the heroes in Heat, both the Pacino and the De Niro character, these are people that are struggling with heavy shit in their lives. At the same time, they're having furious gun battles and life or death shootouts. So like it's at a whole other level of what's possible.
0: Yeah. Aside from the scenes with Trudy and Ricardo, we don't really get any insight into what they do when they're not being cops. Yeah. Do they have
1: hobbies? What's their home life like? Like
0: they have other friends besides each other? Like, I don't know. There's there's not a lot of like interiority to these characters.
1: They're just all about flying planes, piloting go fast boats, driving Ferraris.
0: Well, that was Miami Vice. Do you want to hear about some of the people involved and what they got up to afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. We'll start with the man himself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so many good puns in this episode.
0: <laughs> so Michael Mann, we talked kind of what he did before this. Was The Insider and Ali. This was a bomb, obviously. And then he made Public Enemies in 2009, which was his Johnny Depp, Christian Bale. Is that the John Dillinger movie? Oh, maybe. I
1: can picture them in hats, but that's all I know.
0: There's definitely hats. Yeah, it's a very (laughs) hatty film. I think that's the John Dillinger movie. Let me just double check myself here. I don't want to talk out of turn about Mr. Man. Look at you, Mr. Man. Yeah, so it's about John Dillinger. And uh, that movie was okay, but it made some money. So that was kind of a return to commercial form for him. And of course, he followed it up with his biggest hit to date, Black Hat. It's a very (laughs) hatty film. Yeah. The Chris Hemsworth. Slacker thriller, slacker hacker thriller, which cost $70 million and made 19, not even 19 million, $19. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Are you ready for another tidbit?
1: Yes, please.
0: So this is not actually a John tidbit. This is a secondhand story. I'm probably going to mess up some details, but we're okay. Up. My friend, Matt, big Michael Mann fan. Okay. Michael Mann fan. He went to a screening. I think it was at Nighthawk Cinemas in Brooklyn of Black Hat with Michael Mann. Michael Mann was doing a film festival there, like showing all his movies or doing like a oh, residency neat. and he got tickets to Black Hat and much was made that Michael Mann was like remixing the sound for the movie, not necessarily the soundtrack, but like the sound mixing. And there's one scene in Black Hat where a car explodes and apparently he had turned the volume up so loud. Like people's ears were ringing in the theater for oh, mm, no. like 10 minutes after and Michael Mann was just sitting there with a shit eating grin on his face. Like I loves loud noises.
1: I, I hate to hear that. I would be very terrified and upset. I have a limit to loud noises I can stand in movies.
0: Oh yeah. Do not go see any Michael Mann movies in theaters. Okay. It's good to know. I'd be interested to revisit Black Hat though. It's a movie that is starting to get, again, I feel like we fucking say it all the time, but it's kind of, it's kind of getting momentum as like, hey, maybe we were a little harsh on this movie at first.
1: I mean, we brought it up when we were talking Red Dawn because Hemsworth is this secret patron saint of this show he keeps showing up in bombs
0: unfortunately but fortunate for us because we like him as an actor so we get to watch yeah. his movies more
1: so we might have to circle back on the Hemsworth trail
0: so as of this writing Black Hat is still Michael Mann's most recent film but he does have Ferrari coming out this year okay the biographical film starring Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari Adam Driver's just like he's got this secondary career just playing Italians
1: <laughs> uh, like, oh you need an Italian I can do it he yeah. was this close to being Super Mario you got edged out
0: did his 65 movie ever come out oh yeah
1: i think it came out and flopped didn't it
0: yeah oh yeah oh wow it came out a month ago yeah i kind of would have gone to see it but i didn't even know it
1: was coming out Um,
0: future episode i get to watch it eventually
1: yeah we'll (laughs) get around to that for sure that'll be fun
0: yeah we should we really should do the year end list because there's a lot of 2023 bombs already yeah we're a third of the way through the year so man has that he also was an ep on tokyo vice helped create the show and directed the pilot which was a good show. I enjoyed Tokyo Vice. I didn't finish it. Okay. And it feels the Ansel Elgort of it all feels a little hard to watch. Yeah,
1: but. I hear that. But it got good reviews despite that.
0: And it's got a lot of great supporting performances. He's also, he's working on the movie for Heat 2.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I want him to. No, especially because he's talking about having fucking Pacino back. Oh. do you want to
0: make Heat 2, just make another group of bank robbers who are very competent and another group of cops that are very competent. We don't. I don't need to see Vincent Hanna in his nursing home. Did you read the book? I, ha- I own the book. Okay. Not the same thing. No. Um, no, I've okay. never even opened it. Like, okay. It's I'm working through a list and it's not towards the top of it. I keep moving it down one every time it's yeah. next because <laughs> so I'm like, there's something else I'd rather read.
1: Yeah. I don't even know what's in there. Did he in fact invent a new crew for the new generation or did he just rehash the old stories? My understanding
0: of how the book is formatted and you could assume the movie is that parts of the book take place immediately after the events of the film and kind of follow the surviving members okay. of each crew. And then parts of it take place in present day, and theoretically follow the members of each crew and maybe new or younger younger characters okay i will have to read it before heat 2 comes out but i think i have some time as far as I know, like they haven't even started casting yet. All right. So that's what man's been up to. Staying busy. Let's talk about Colin Farrell. He's the talk of Tinseltown lately.
1: Talk about staying busy. That man has really engineered a great next chapter in his career since this movie.
0: He barely looks like he's aged, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of weird. He's a shockingly handsome man. But like the way we said last week that Josh Hartnett is really handsome, but not necessarily charismatic. Colin Farrell is both handsome and charismatic, <laughs> becoming one of my favorite actors, to be sure.
1: Yeah, so much good stuff. I mean, Banshees was fantastic and such. An interesting role, but before that, he caught my attention in the last couple of years with obviously his turn in the Batman was fantastic. The, talk of the town that was really amazing and just kind of out of left field. And he's getting
0: a show. He's getting a Oswald Cobblepot show.
1: Oh my God. I feel bad for him with his six hours in the makeup chair every damn yeah. morning on his TV series. Still, I can't wait to see that. And then I also kind of got turned on to him with the North Water, which was a year or two ago. Cable. Series. Oh, that was that was show that? you were watching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he plays this incredible villain in that. Like, it's he's not the lead. Ooh. He's the villain and it's one of the chewiest. I mean, like right along the lines of the Penguin, like it's just a fucking weird ass character and so scary and good.
0: That might be my next show now that I'm caught up on Snowfall because that sounds awesome. I love Colin Farrell as a villain. He's so um, good in this.
1: And it's not a long series. It's real, digestible. I definitely recommend it. You also,
0: just a couple weeks ago, you brought the Lobster show and Tell and he's the star of that as well. Yes.
1: I guess the relationship with Martin McDonough goes way back and I never watched In Bruges, but I'm going to have to now that I'm a dedicated Farrell You gotta fuck watch watching
0: Especially it's Farrell and Gleason. Yes. It's the Banshee Boys, as I call them. <laughs> no Barry Cogan. I think he was like seven yeah, at the time. Yeah, he
1: was a little baby.
0: So he's worked actually twice with Yargos Lanthimos. Uh, he did The Lobster and he did Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is my preferred of the two. And that was his first collaboration with weird little guy Barry Cogan as well.
1: Man, what yeah. a, what an interesting network has been woven of these actors. He's playing
0: a real weird little guy in that movie. Like probably his weirdest little guy to date. And he played the yeah. Joker.
1: So. Both those movies got to go into my short list now.
0: For sure. But so at this point, he was in kind of a tough spot. Because he had done The New World, the Terrence Malick movie in 2005, which is gorgeous, but tedious in the way Malick movies are. So it got some mixed reviews. I wouldn't necessarily call it a bomb, but it was at least a flop. Probably didn't make any money. Okay. Probably didn't lose a ton either. I remember he doesn't say much in that movie, but it's a Terrence Malick movie. People just don't really talk in that. Okay. Way, and they just kind of observe nature and things, but gorgeous movie. If you just want to like, you could turn your brain off and just take in the scenery in that movie and it'll be a time well spent. Neat. Before that was Alexander, which is one of the biggest bombs of the aughts. Yes. Absolutely Dog shit Oliver Stone movie, which we'll unfortunately have to talk about one day. This movie and the previous flops kind of killed his leading man status for a while. He would get the leading role in In Bruges, but that wasn't that wasn't a big movie. It's become no. like a, a cult classic, but it was kind of under the radar at the time. And then he would kind of reinvent himself in 2011 with Horrible Bosses. I feel like that was when people were like, oh, Colin Farrell, maybe he's kind of back now. Okay. Because he was doing something really different than he'd done before. He's got like the thinning comb over hair in that movie. He put on a little weight. He's got a little paunch leaning away from his handsomeness. And uh, he's just playing a silly little guy and he's really creepy and disturbing in a funny way.
1: He's great when he leans into that. And bless him for following that path in his career rather than trying to get back to redo versions of Alexander and make them work.
0: And then he would he reunited with Martin McDonough in 2012 with Seven Psychopaths, which is an exceedingly strange movie that I do enjoy, but I'm well aware that it's not for everybody. Okay. And then he's gotten back into the big stuff. We already mentioned the Batman, but he was also in Fantastic Beasts Somewhere to Find Them oh, and okay. uh, Widows. So he's into some big Hollywood productions recently. And yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Banshees. So he's back on his shit. Let's talk about yeah. Jamie Foxx. Okay. Jamie Foxx was also in a bit of a down moment. So he had Collateral and Ray, critically and commercially successful movies that he got okay. reviews for. I think people were really starting to respect him for his acting chops in this. Ali actually had a big part to play, I think, in him getting more respected as an actor, which was, of course, another Michael Mann film. Yeah. But he followed that up with the massive bomb Stealth, which Ooh. is a absolutely terrible sci-fi movie with Jessica Biel on it. Okay. And he made Jarhead which was the Jake Gyllenhaal military movie, which was really good, but was a flop. Okay, But then he would have a role in Dreamgirls, which was a critical commercial hit. And then he was in Horrible Bosses as well as Motherfucker Jones, one of the best character names in history.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can kind of remember that and liking him. I got to go back and watch that movie because I don't remember a lot else.
0: People sometimes forget, like he started out as a stand-up comedian. Um, That was his his original path into the entertainment industry. So he's obviously a very funny guy, but he took a lot of dramatic roles in this portion of his career. And I think people forgot. His biggest role as a leading man after Ray was probably as Go Unchained, which was a huge movie for him. He joined the Spider-Verse as Electro and reprised his role in the No Way Home. He was in Baby Driver. He put in a very good performance in Baby Driver. Everyone has a good performance in Baby Driver.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: He's pretty terrifying in that. He just did the Netflix action vampire comedy, Day Shift. Yes. I remember the poster. I never watched it.
1: I turned on five minutes of it. I'm like, this is awful. I couldn't hang with it. Good to know. Um, It's like a really cool premise. Looked really fun. He was also in that other, I don't know if it was a Netflix movie, something about power. It was another uh, story. Oh Sci-fi yeah, premise, yeah, yeah, yeah! Direct to video type thing. Yeah, I remember it exactly. Yeah, if
0: the posters are just him like close up on his fist, like the Arthur meme. But could be wrong.
1: <laughs> that movie was decent. It was watchable. It was kind of a corny action movie. What was notable because that was the first time I noticed Dominique Fishback, who is now the star of Warm, that new Donald Glover series. And she had this small role as this kid. And I was like, "Who is this actress? She's really good." She kind of stood out. I'm
0: trying to remember where I know her from because I definitely know. Oh, she was in the Deuce. That's where I know her from. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch that. Really good show. Upset though, in the way only David Simon productions can be. And also got James Franco in the lead role, which is kind of creepy in hindsight.
1: So many creepy things in hindsight. Project Power was the name of that movie, just to make sure if, if anyone is intrigued and wants to check it out. I might I give mean. it
0: a gander. I haven't watched a Jamie Foxx movie besides this one in a while. He has eight movies in some stage of production, so we'll be seeing a lot more of him.
1: Okay, he's not slowing down.
0: Not at all. He's building his nest egg. As he's getting older. He's maybe thinking about retiring. He wants to build up his bank account first. That's what I would do. Gong Lee was best known in America at this point for Memoirs of a Geisha, but... But she was a huge star in China. She hasn't acted since 2020, but oh. I think she lives in China and I know that their approach to the pandemic was very different from ours. So I don't really know right. if they've ramped up film production again yet. Yeah. But she starred in Mulan and Leap in 2020. So she's still getting out there in okay. big productions. And uh, that's what I got. Do you have any closing thoughts on
1: Miami Vice you wanted to go over? No, I have a closing Gong Li thought though. I liked her. I thought she was actually, she had one of the most human and different roles. Like a lot of the characters in this movie were cookie cutters. Obviously, Crockett and Tubbs are these archetypes that we know super well. And she she stood out, and then some of the other characters that were new that weren't from the show were kind of cookie cutter Latin American Coke dealer types. It's a little bit, but yeah, yeah, I mean, they did them well, the actors were fantastic, but she was like something different, and it was good. I think she elevated this movie. So, I just wanted to point out that I thought for me, she was one of the high points of the movie.
0: I appreciate that you appreciated her.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that.
0: So, next week, exciting one, it's kind of a genre we haven't done too often, and a star we've never covered as far as I can remember, quite a big name. Couple big names in this one.
1: We're doing the cable guy. Yes. Finally getting around to the cable guy. Getting it hooked up. Were you a fan of the cable guy back in the day? No. There was a time when I appreciated Jim Carrey, but I think like the rest of America, it was kind of always some push-pull in that relationship. And at this point I was not into him. And so I just was never into seeing it. So it's all new to me. All
0: right, cool. I've seen it many times, but like so many movies we talk about, not for a long, long time. It'll be fun to revisit it and see yeah. if it's as I remembered. But uh thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate review, subscribe to the pod, follow us on twitter at blast zone pod email us blast at gmail.com hit us up for any recommendations feedback longitude latitude coordinates and we need vectors
1: (laughs) and we need vectors bro this is how drug deals are done because we know now that we've watched miami vice and uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone